What a tremendous text we have in front of us this morning. Acts chapter 19. Father in heaven, we're grateful. I'm so grateful for this time, this place, for these people. And Jesus, we believe that you want to bless us. We believe that you have blessed us this morning. But now, Lord, we we just look for another aspect to that, and that you'd speak to us through your word. So please do it, Lord. We give you our attention. We give you our heart right now. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, our text begins at Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 21. But but again, I, I think it's important just for me, just for a moment, to put it in the context of the whole book of Acts. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead to show that death could not hold him, that the price was completely paid, and all the power of heaven resided in Jesus Christ. And then some days, some 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, he spoke to his disciples and he told them, I want you to take the gospel, the good news, this message of who I am and what I've done. I want you to take that and I want you to make disciples all over the world. I want you to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts, after chapter 1, really lays out how the followers of Jesus did that. And one of these notable followers of Jesus who came at a later point was this man, Saul of Tarsus, who we better know as Paul the Apostle, And he was one of the most dynamic and instrumental men in spreading this message of who Jesus is and what he's done for us in that first century. And so what we've been following lately in our chapters through the book of Acts is the the, the journeys, the travels of this man, the Apostle Paul, as he does this work. And right now we're in the midst of what we call his third missionary journey. And he's spent several years, a couple years now, at a city called Ephesus. And God has done an amazing work, not only in Ephesus, which was a major and important city there in the ancient world, but God did amazing work in the whole region around Ephesus. I mean, people were coming Christ. Look at what it says right there in verse 20. I know we're formally going to start at verse 21, but look at verse 20. It's speaking of God's work in the whole area. It says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means when the word of the Lord grows mightily and prevails? It means that lives are being transformed by the message of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. It means, if I could put it this way, it means that here's a man who's now transformed by the power of the gospel. His life has changed. There's a love in his life that there wasn't before. And so now he doesn't come home and beat his wife anymore. It means that here's a marriage that used to be almost split up and and there was just sin or immorality. It means that two people in there, they're touched by Jesus Christ. Their lives are changed. There's a marriage. There's children who have a, a parents that they didn't have before because of this. It means that lives are transformed, addictions are set free, people have their their lives touched and changed. I mean, it's just an exciting transformation happening life by life. Now, when you think about it in those terms, you say, well, who could possibly object to such a thing, right? But it happens. Anytime God is doing a great work, there's always some sort of pushback. There's always some sort of opposition by... You know, I search around for the right phrase. I search around for a phrase that expresses it truly, but doesn't sound too weird in your ears. And I don't know if I can find one. Because I say there's pushback from the kingdom of darkness. Should I say there's pushback from Satan and his cohorts? I don't know what to say exactly, but I think you know what I mean, right? There's there's just a, a, a power of opposition 
to what God wants to do in this world, and it's out there. And it pushes back whenever God is moving in a mighty way. That's what we're going to hear about and how God does it, starting now at verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So what are these two verses telling us? Well, after this season of amazing advance for the kingdom of God, lives transformed by this amazing message of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us, especially what he came to do us on the cross. Paul, as it says in verse 21, did you see that there? It says he purposed in his spirit. He says, hey, I, I, I just feel God wants me to do this. I just feel that my time in Ephesus is done. I'm going to head out. I'm going to tour through Macedonia and Achaia, and then I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I want to go see Rome. I've got to go see the Christians in Rome. Paul didn't start the church in Rome. Paul had never been to Rome, but he knew, man, it's significant that there's a great group of Christians in Rome. i got to see this, and that's how the book of Acts is going to end with Paul in Rome. It's fascinating. These two verses sort of give us a little bit of a travelogue for what's going to happen the rest of the way. I mean, what you have is you have, number one, Paul going through Macedonia, Achaia, then he goes to Jerusalem, and then he goes to Rome, and then the book of Acts is over. Now, what's interesting, and I'll just throw this out, a little tidbit, little, you know, teaser. What happens to him in Jerusalem and how he gets to Rome is crazy. And God really moves through it. And I'm tempted just to talk about it right now, but let's just say, Paul really felt he had to go see Rome. So he says, okay, great. Timothy, Erastus, you guys go on ahead of me to Macedonia. I'll finish up my business here in Ephesus. I'll meet you guys along the way. Great, you guys go. Now, this was a little bit of a thing. We know from previously in the book of Acts, it always seems that Paul preferred to have his associates around him. Paul was not a lone ranger kind of guy. So he liked to have Timothy there. He liked to have Erastus there. But he says, look, I'm only going to be in Ephesus a short while longer. You guys go ahead. It'll be good for the work. I don't like being alone, but it's the best. Go ahead and do it. So he does that, right? Okay, ready now? That sets the stage. Verse 23. And at about that time, the work has gone well for two years. The gospel has been pumping out in an amazing way there in the city of Ephesus and all around. About that time when Paul was alone, he had sent on his trusted associates. I mean, obviously, there's lots of Christians there in Ephesus, but, but his close associates have moved on. What happens next? And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. That's verse 23. Again, I just want to mention this just because it fascinates me. I don't know if it fascinates you, but it does me. That one of the earliest terms used to describe the meetings of Christians, these followers of Jesus... These people who decided to be disciples of Jesus Christ, one of the earliest terms used to describe them were the way or the people of the way. I like that. One of the reasons I like that is because especially in our own day and age, people think of Christianity as just a set of ideas that you hold. I wouldn't doubt, I mean, I'm speaking to many people here this morning. I wouldn't doubt at all if there's some people here and you walked in here this morning and your main idea about what Christianity is is you think, Christianity means certain opinions that you hold. If you're a Christian, you have these opinions, and and that's it. I'm here to tell you, Christianity has to do with ideas and opinions that you hold. Faith, if you will. But it's a faith that touches and registers in the real life. It's about a way that you live. And so I I like this description. It's a great description of what it was in the early Christian movement. It should be like that for us in our modern world. Then again, back verse 23. And about that time, there was a great commotion about the way. 
For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay, folks, let the movie run in your head, right? After two years of amazing ministry, we're just about when Paul's going to depart from Ephesus, a guy named Demetrius, who's sort of like the president of the silversmiths and idol makers guild, right? Not exactly a union, but sort of a trade association. And friends, these trade ex- associations existed and were real and were powerful in the ancient world. I mean, they were protective associations. These guys could make a good living off of making idols for people to worship. Here's your little souvenir idol of Diana when you came and visited them. They would sell them as trinkets. They'd sell them as souvenirs. They'd sell them as idols. You'd go home, and you could take just a little piece of the Temple of Diana with you home, a little silver shrine, take it with you, blah, 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 blah. They made a good living off of this. So do you got the movie running in your mind? Demetrius, one day he stands up and he goes, I'm sick of this. Business is down because so many people are following Jesus and not Diana. Look at our sales charts. And he goes, it's all the wrong way. It's all going bad. What are we going to do? The the business projections are horrible. I've got the numbers in for the last quarter. It's awful. Business is down and it's getting worse. Why? Because that guy, Paul, is telling people not to worship idols. He tells them to worship some guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who has ascended into heaven. And that's the whole thing. The preaching Paul did was so effective that it was making a big dent, having a great effect upon the livelihood of those who made idols. That's what the whole thing was about. And they tied it back with, verse 27 says, with the temple of Diana. Let me read this to you. This trade of ours is in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed. Now, the tremendous temple of Diana, who was also known as Artemis in the ancient world, it was regarded as one of the most magnificent wonders of the ancient world. You know, sometimes they list out the seven wonders of the ancient world. Folks, this is one of them. It had 127 pillars, and each one of those pillars was 60 feet high. And it was decorated with great sculptures, and it was lost to history but discovered in the late 19th century Archaeologists have discovered it more than this. It was a magnificent, amazing building described both by the ancients and the moderns. It drew people to Ephesus. It drew people there as pilgrims. It drew people to the Temple of Diana because Diana, well, if I could say this, Diana, the idol within the temple that was worshipped, was some kind of a black meteorite that had fallen from the skies. And either it was decorated or carved into an idolatrous image of a woman who had, if I can say this delicately, multiple breasts to describe how fertile and life-giving she was. And like many of these fertility cults in the ancient world, you worshipped Diana by having sex with one of the ritual prostitutes, which, if I could say it without sounding too crude, made the worship of Diana very popular. 
I mean, this was a big business. People came from all over the ancient world to worship, so to speak. I feel awkward even using that phrase with it. But, but to, to, to participate in these uh, licentious rites that happened at the Temple of Diana, to consort with the temple prostitutes, to buy the little idol from the silversmith, so on and so on. Matter of fact, it was so prevalent. Look at it. It says, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when it says Asia, it's not talking about China. It's talking about the Roman province of Asia. They're talking about their whole region. They're saying our region is in love with following Diana and the temple and all of that. But what has Paul done? Look at what it says in verse 26. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Again, as I said before, Paul was so effective in leading so many people to Christ and the work of the gospel had spread so mightily that business was significantly down for this trade guild of idol makers and they were very sore about it. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but let me throw it out to you right now. Christianity should affect the economy. It should affect your personal economy as an individual. I don't doubt that at all, right? When a person comes to Jesus Christ, it should have an effect on what they do with their money. I mean, Jesus Christ has rights over all of you if you belong to him, right? Every part of you. Not just a couple hours on Sunday. I'm grateful for those couple hours of Sunday. I'm glad you're here. But listen, if he really is the Lord, the master of your life, he has rights over all of you, including your bank accounts, including that... Christian, on an individual level, it should have an effect on your individual economy. But that should also be collectively true of a community, is it not? I mean, look, if there's a lot of people who used to support the temple prostitutes at the Temple of Diana, and then they come to Jesus and they don't do that anymore, now business is down at the Temple of Diana, right? Christianity should affect the economy. And in Ephesus... The business was down at the pagan shrines because of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. This has happened again and again, especially during times, I don't know what you want to call it. You call it revival, you can call it awakening, you can kind of call it a time of significant advance for the kingdom of God. But it happens. And couldn't I just say, wouldn't we be delighted? Wouldn't we be delighted that there was such a move of God in our city that some of the bars had to shut down just because there was no business? Not from people standing outside picketing, saying, shut down this place. There's just no business. People don't want to go there. Not coercion. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, uh, if, if strip clubs just didn't have enough business to stay open? Why? Because so many people came to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if the underground economy of drug dealers and all the rest, sorry, you know, you guys got to get laid off. There's just not enough business for you. Again, again, not through coercion, but just because people come to Jesus and their lives are transformed. And might I say that this is how we should endeavor to change society. Now, I don't think we should be against changing society on a big scale. There are certain people who really feel called to serve God and to represent him in politics and in major media and in, uh, you know, the financial world and all of that. And listen, God bless it when, when things like that can be done for the good of God's kingdom. But I'll tell you, the most significant and the most enduring changes that happen for the kingdom of God happen life by life, individual by individual. And it will have an effect on the economy of a community. Now, I want to make something very clear here. In Acts chapter 19, verse 37, 
It is specifically said that Paul had not blasphemed the goddess Diana. Paul was not on an anti-Diana campaign. That wasn't his big thing. He didn't carry a picket sign out in front of the temple of Diana saying, down with Diana, or something like that. No, 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 this was not an, you know... All right, I was going to say it, I'll just say it. This was not an Occupy Ephesus kind of movement by Paul, okay? (laughs) No, instead, what this was, it was just very simply, people were being led to Jesus Christ. Paul was being pro-Jesus... But as he was being pro-Jesus, people were moving away from the worship of all these other things. That's why he says in verse 27, Also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So he's appealing to civic pride. Hey, everybody, let's get behind our great temple and let's drive out Paul and these people who are preaching Christianity and driving down our business. Well, if that wasn't about Demetrius whipping up the crowd at the end of their verse 28, they're crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Well, Demetrius says, good, I got something going here. Let's pump it up. Verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion. Okay, let the movie run through your head as I read this. All right. The whole city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonius, Paul's traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out, For about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Were you picturing that as I was reading it? What a crazy scene. First of all, verse 29 says, The whole city was filled with confusion, and they rushed into the theater with one accord. You know, you can go to the ruins of the theater at Ephesus today. You can imagine that place filled with thousands of angry, protesting people. They're sick of the inroads that have been made against the worship of Diana. They're pro-Diana and they're anti-Jesus. And things were getting rapidly out of hand because they're beginning to push back against the work that God was doing. I've said it before this morning, but I'll say it again. It has often happened in the history of Christianity that when God moves among his people, when they become serious about their Christianity, it will affect the livelihood of those who trade in vice or immorality. And there will be pushback against that. You know, this happened in the early days of the Salvation Army movement. Do you know anything about the early days of the Salvation Army movement? Now, I don't know what you think of the Salvation Army today. You know, maybe you just think of thrift stores or social help. And they do an enormous amount of good. Maybe you think of a red kettle, something like that. Look, they do an enormous amount of good. But let me tell you something about the Salvation Army in their early days under their original founder, General William Booth. And you know why they called him General? Because they organized the Salvation Army like an army. And he was the general. And he organized everything. And what these guys were, these guys were the most hardcore, just cutting edge, go out into the worst communities, get in the face of sinners and call them to repentance. They would march through the very worst neighborhoods and slums with their bands and do evangelistic work and do everything that they could. Well, listen, they started being very effective and you had this same Ephesian dynamic going on, right? 
Pimps didn't have any customers anymore. Uh, the bars and, and grog shops were being shut down, and, and things were getting better for the community, but worse for those who traded in vice and immorality. And so you know what they did? They started a counter-movement to the Salvation Army. They called it the Skeleton Army. And it was organized by the, the, the pimps and the bar owners, and they went against the Salvation Army with threats and violence, and even a few Salvation Army workers were murdered by the Skeleton Army. Because the Skeleton Army was a violent army. The Salvation Army was an army of love out there to spread the gospel. Well, again, the same kind of dynamic takes place. So you can just picture in your mind this great riot. And then verse 33 describes this fellow Alexander. He comes out of the multitude. The Jews put him forward. Maybe Alexander was there to explain, hey, everybody, these Christians, they're not part of us Jewish people, but the crowd didn't care. The crowd can be very irrational, right? A mob, a movement sometimes is very irrational. They they just didn't care. They, They were out for blood. They were out for violence. And verse 34 says this, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And how long did they say it for? For two hours. I want you to think, did you read earlier, do you remember that earlier, how they had to hold back the Apostle Paul from going into that place? You know what's so great about that? It just shows Paul's heart. Paul's heart is, what, there's a crowd? Maybe I can preach to him. That's like his thinking, right? No, 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 Paul, don't go there. They hate you. They don't want you to win. Well, I could preach to him maybe. No, no, no. They have to beg him, don't go in there. Because that crowd, for about the space of two hours, could you imagine that? What if we just spent the next five minutes doing that? You'd be sick of it after five minutes. These people are so passionate, they're so beside themselves, that for two hours, in those amazing uh, 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 acoustics, that's the word I was looking for, the amazing acoustics of that theater, there they are just screaming it out, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is the Diana of the Ephesians. Now, I want you to think, about how their obsessive proclamation of their of the glory of their idolatry, how it echoes across time. It sounds very strange to us. You think, well, that's very strange that people would stand around and for two hours scream out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You ever been to an NFL football game? People do this, right? You see, people today say different things, don't they? But they say it. They say it sometimes with their words. They say it sometimes with their actions. Sometimes they say it with their dollars. But they say it, right? They say, great is my sports team. And they say it really loud, right? Sometimes they'll say, great is my political party. Don't they say that sometimes? Sometimes don't they cry out, Great is the consumer economy. You go to some of these great trade shows where they give the most unbelievable and interesting gadgets, right? Could you just hear from the consumer? Can't you just walk the malls at Christmas time and hear people crying out, Great is the consumer economy. How about this? Great is the Internet. Great is material wealth. Great is getting drunk or getting high. Right? People scream that, do they? They they worship those things today just as much as they worship Diana in the ancient world. If you'll listen, you can hear people shouting it out all around our community. They say the same things. Now, this is funny. People say, great is my sports team, great is my political party, great is the consumer economy, great is this, great is that. Nobody thinks they're weird. If I stand up and cry out, great is the Lord Jesus Christ, suddenly I'm the weirdo. How does that work? 
I mean, there's actually a Jesus who's enthroned in heaven who died for my sins, who's the Savior of the world. And that Jesus brings a message of love and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation. And I'm not going to accept it from anybody. That makes me weird for crying out that that's great. When there are people who cry out great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. Because look, let me tell you something. For all the supposed greatness of Diana of the Ephesians. And I'll tell you something. That crowd on that day, they were absolutely persuaded of it, right? They could look over at the temple. What are you going to tell me Diana of the Ephesians is not great? Just look at that temple. Look at how magnificent she is. Look at how many people worship her. Look at what great living we make from selling her trinkets. On and on. Listen, nobody worships her today, at least not directly. Yet there are millions and millions of people who will give their lives for Jesus Christ. Friends, the slide up on the screen right now shows you the ruins of the Temple of Diana today. One lonely pillar, or just a few of them. That's it. Look at that picture, and let me say this and see if it connects. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. What? She stopped being great a long time ago if she ever was great. But I'll say this. Great is the Lord Jesus Christ. Millions upon millions of people today live for him and would gladly die for him. All those idols, all those false gods, you know what they are? They have expiration dates. You ever deal with that? Just long ago in our refrigerator, we had some, well, we had some milk that had passed its expiration date. And oh boy, it was almost chunky in the refrigerator, right? And wow, it was just, that. listen, those idols in your life, those false things that you live for or buy into to whatever degree, they've all got expiration dates and they're all spoiled. Clean them out. Jesus Christ, he reigns on high. Well, what happens in Ephesus? You can imagine them screaming out for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly for we are in danger of being called into question. For today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he had dismissed the assembly. Verse 38 introduces us to a man known as the city clerk. Excuse me, verse 35. And the city clerk stands up, and he's in a very difficult position because he's something like the mayor of the city, and he's responsible for the riot going on. So you can just imagine him saying, Rome is going to have my head because I allowed a riot. What am I going to do? Well, first he lets the crowd exhaust themselves. And as after two hours, maybe the volume and the pace is going down a little bit from great as Diana the Ephesians. He stands up and he gets their attention. Please, please let me speak to you. And what does he say? Well, first he says, look, we all know how great Diana is, right? Nobody's questioning that. And then he says, guys. Nothing has been done against us by Paul and his associates. They haven't done it. They haven't campaigned against us. 
If there are charges to be made, let them be made in a court of law. And as he speaks, it soothes the crowd. And maybe they were just getting tired anyway, but then they filed out. And Paul and the movement of the gospel were preserved in that situation. You see, Luke wants to show us that God's hand was protecting that Christian movement even when it was being protected by an anonymous city clerk over the city of Ephesus. Well, friends, I want you to see something. I want you to see something in the bigger context of the text here. What we see is this. When God begins to move in a mighty way, there's pushback, isn't there? Now, the reason why I bring that up is because I think that there are many people who are aware of that dynamic and it frightens them. I've spoken to many people who have that kind of attitude. They say something like this. Look, any time I start getting serious about Jesus in my life, things start going wrong. Things start going bad. And so you know what they say? They say, so I ask, well, what do you do? Well, I just don't get so serious about Jesus. I say, well, that's, that's ending the battle by raising a great big white flag, isn't it? You've ended the battle, but you haven't won anything. You've ended the battle by surrendering. Instead, what Luke is trying to show us here, and the Holy Spirit speaking through him, is that when that pushback comes, you can trust that God will preserve. God will see you through it. And I don't know how he'll do it. Maybe he'll deliver you from the trial. Maybe he'll deliver you in the trial. God will do it somehow, and you can trust in that. But I think about it. I think about it at the beginning of a new year. I think about people who say, okay, you know what? This year is going to be different in my life with Jesus Christ. And maybe you've thought about the last few weeks. and Maybe you've gotten more serious and you felt some of that pushback come against you. And you say, well, forget that. Why should I reach out my hand to do more and to go further with Jesus if I get hit on my hand when I reach it out? Here's the thing. Jesus will be with you. Jesus will protect you. Don't satisfy yourself with ending the battle by surrender. God had his hand on this early Christian movement, and he has his hand upon us today. This chapter here gives us a permanent lesson. That whenever we go forth, whatever God is moving in a mighty way, and then the kingdom of darkness pushes it back against it with some way, we expect for it, we prepare for it, but we go forth with absolutely full confidence in King Jesus. I want to see that true on an individual level, don't you? Don't you want to see individual lives of people around you? Lives change that way. It could be true on a family level for you and your particular family. And it can be true very much for us on a congregational level, right? You see, look, we don't expect this sort of primrose path with daisies strewn all about with nothing going wrong as soon as we get serious about Jesus. We expect that there's going to be some opposition, but we expect that King Jesus will send forth whatever messengers we need to protect us, to guide us, to bless us. What I'm trying to do is take away any excuse for fear that you have for pressing on forward with Jesus Christ. Are you afraid of that? Maybe you did it before. Maybe there was a season in your life. You thought, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to do that. Look, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm not going to deny Jesus. I just won't be so serious about Jesus as I was before. No, now's the time for you to ratchet it down, to amp it up more than ever, and to say, yes, now's the time for me to press through. God will protect and bless you in the midst of it. Look, why? Because what Jesus did for us on the cross is so big 
is so mighty, is so freeing, that he wants it to spread about to as many people as possible. That's why he needs us to be in it with him all the way. So we can be his co-workers, his co-laborers, his co-inheritors of a great kingdom that he brings forth. I'm going to pray just for that. I'm going to pray right now that God would take away any reason for your fear, any reason for your apprehension about pressing forward and seeing God do a greater work in your life than he's ever done before. Because he'll protect you just as much as he could quiet down an angry, idolatrous mob. God can quiet down anything that will oppose you when you begin to get serious about him. Father, that's my prayer for these precious people, Lord. It's my prayer for myself. Every one of us, Lord, we understand it. We, we grab hold of it by instinct that for us to press forward with you, for us to advance the way we should with you, there's going to be some cost that's paid, Lord. There'll be some pushback in some ways. But God, we're here to say that right now that you helping us, Jesus, we will not be afraid of it. We'll trust in the power and the wisdom and the grace of our captain, King Jesus. And we won't be ashamed just to to say it out. Great is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the world can say what it wants. It can glorify lesser things and raise up even good things to the level of idols. Lord, we'll keep faithful to the one true and living God revealed to us in his son. Do that work among us. Lord, draw us close to your cross. We know this is the center of who you are and what you came to do for us. Draw us close to your cross. Do it here now this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.